Hey, thanks for being here this morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. And uh, normally in this spot here uh, between our song and uh, getting into the word together, we take some time to, um, to pray. We take some time as a community of faith to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. We take time to acknowledge that uh, we are people who believe in a God who invites us to pray, invites us to participate with what he is doing in the world, that we are people who have uh, our feet firmly grounded in reality. That while we look ahead and look forward to our future hope, we recognize that we still, that we live in this world. We live in this world that is broken. We live in this world um, that is not the way that God intends it to be. And so we come before him and we cry out. We ask for his help. We ask for his presence in our lives. And I want to invite Adam Green up. And um, as many of you all know, if, if uh, you can't really turn the TV on or uh, open up social media or read anything uh, these days without knowing that uh, we are facing, uh, not just in this country, but across the world, uh, a health crisis, uh, the coronavirus, um, and just all of the things that are happening as a result of this virus. Um, and Adam has, uh, I'll let him explain a little bit more about why he's up here, um, but he has asked that we just take some time uh, and wants to lead us in a time of understanding how we as God's people uh, approach this, how we, how we look at this, and what it means for us to step into this uh, with prayer and hopefulness, uh, knowing that we serve the great physician and the great healer, uh, that God wasn't asleep at the wheel when this, when this happened and is happening, but that he is in control. So, Adam. Everyone, I want to say it's actually really nice. Normally, I'd be pretty nervous here, um, but y'all are family, and that's really uh, encouraging. So I wanted to talk about the coronavirus. Oh, that's a lot better. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's a virus that infects mammals, birds, humans, um, and it causes a respiratory condition. Um, it's not the first one that we've had. Uh, SARS and MERS have happened in the past. Um, and then you also have flu season. Flu season happens every year. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm a microbiologist uh, in public health. Um, I just want to say that, and also that I'm speaking on my, out of my own opinion, not representing any group. Fair said. All right. <laughs> Disclaimer. Um, and so for most people, this uh, new or novel coronavirus, the symptoms are a common cold. Um, you'll sneeze, you cough. It's not like you're going to be on uh, death's door or anything. Um, the problem is it's highly infectious, and certain groups, um, the elderly, people with a poor immune system, people with chronic conditions, um, it can become a lot more complicated than that. People can get pneumonia, people can have this uh, really nasty immune response, and the scary thing is that coronavirus is highly infectious, um, so it produces, currently as we see in China, a healthcare strain as well as a strain on supply infrastructure. Um, 87,000 people, mostly in China, have been infected worldwide. And of that number, 3,000 have died. Um, for the outcomes, 93% have recovered, whereas 7% have passed away. 
Currently, South Korea is actually on the up in terms of infection rate. And we're also seeing this in the US. Um, I think it was yesterday's news that the Washington, Washington State, um, there was a death from coronavirus as well as potentially 50 other people sick at the elderly care center. Uh, we don't know that, but we do know these people are sick and they're currently being tested. So I just wanna lead you all in prayer. Um, we, let's just start with that. Father God, we live in a sinful, broken, evil world. And to face that, to see, to see it's, it rear its head is hideous. And, and we're part of that. We are that broken world. God, I just ask, I, I call on Jesus' name that we recognize the hope that is in you. The hope for a new world, the hope for freedom from sin, from death. God, where else, where else would we go if not to you? God, I, I recognize that you conquered the grave. God, you conquered death. And throughout your word, you tell us to take heart, to not fear. God, you provide for us, even as you provide for a sparrow, so much more you provide for us. God, I pray for China. I pray for the tens of thousands of people who are having their lives affected, who are living in fear. Um, many of them are in a situation where they have had their voice suppressed, where they have been told they can't speak about this, uh, this outbreak. They've been arrested for such. They've been silenced, and the rest are living in fear. God, I pray for those people affected. Um, I pray for their health. I pray for hope. I pray for our church community in China that they feel your love, God, as we pray for them. I pray for Germany. I pray for France, Singapore, Hong Kong, all the states and all the countries that are currently feeling the, the fear and the pain as this virus is showing up. Um, God, ultimately, you are in control. You love us. You work things for our good. We hold to your promises. God, I just, I pray that your Holy Spirit is present in these countries, that you give the Centers for Disease Control wisdom in how they approach this issue, that you give the leaders and policymakers in these countries, in our country, your guidance. God, we give this over to you. We trust this to you in your holy name, I pray. Amen. I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago to um, attend a workshop, and I was in a small group with a brother who is actually working here in Indianapolis, um, who is pastoring a church for uh, uh, Chinese Americans here uh, in Indianapolis. He was born and raised in China, and he was just sharing with us. Uh, he still has family. He has uh, brothers and sisters in the faith that still live in China, and that this is uh, something 
that is not just like, hey, this is a, uh, another place on the other side of the world for him, but he's having people whose lives are directly affected by this, churches who and groups of believers who can't get together and meet together because they've been quarantined in their homes. And, um, and so that was something for me that was like, wow, you know, this isn't just uh, another, another place in the world that's uh, out of out of sight, out of mind for me, but I'm talking here with a brother whose life is, is affected and people that he loves are affected. So Adam, thank you for, for making us aware of that. And, and, uh, and I want to encourage us to continue to pray, to continue to ask God to heal um, and to protect uh, from, from this virus. Well, um, we are in our last Sunday of our series where we are taking a look together at the biblical practices of fasting and feasting, fasting and feasting. And um, as some of you know, I grew up in a country blue-collar Baptist church. And if there's one thing that is true about country blue-collar Baptist churches is that there are women who can cook in these churches. (laughs) Does some of you know what I'm talking about? I mean, some of you have been in these uh, in these churches, you've experienced that. Uh, some of you who grew up in church cultures are probably familiar with the uh, the potluck, the the pitch in, or in the vernacular of my uh, church growing up, the after church fellowship. That's what we called it, the after church fellowship. We made it sound a lot uh, more spiritual, maybe than it was. But as a boy, as most boys, I was always hungry. Uh, I always uh, was fond of eating, and I was always the first boy, the first person in line when food was served, especially at our after-church fellowships. Um, So much good food. The women at our church did not disappoint. We held these after-church fellowships, these dinners, about once a month, uh, and I looked forward to that Sunday every single month because it was a combination of uh, food that I didn't normally eat in my own home. Uh, It was uh, extra time that I got to spend with my friends, the laughing, the singing, just being together, not to mention that we had a whole room that was dedicated just to desserts. And I knew that my parents could not monitor that room. I love that room. But those church feasts, uh, they were a lot of fun, and um, they hold a very dear, uh, they're, they're, I hold those, those, those times very dear in my memories of my childhood growing up. It was just such a part of our church culture and the way that we existed as a, as a church family. But I'll be honest with you. Now that I'm an adult, the idea of feasting isn't as joyous to me. It's not as joyous. It's lost uh, a a sense of that, uh, of being special. Sure, I I look forward to going out to a nice restaurant, uh, to eating really good food. Um, I enjoy going to holiday dinner parties. But at this stage of my life, every opportunity to partake in an abundance of food is also accompanied by the anxiety of counting calories. 
the dread of feeling sick after uh, I've eaten and the knowledge that I'll probably need to plan some extra exercise in my schedule in the following days. Kind of takes the joy out of feasting, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we could feast and celebrate and enjoy really good food and good drink with each other without regretting it? What if we could experience feasting as a delight instead of something that we'll have to make up for afterwards? What if our feasting wasn't simply about satisfying our appetite, but deepening our communion with Jesus and with each other? If you're like me, you probably don't know how to really feast because you don't know how to really fast. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the practice of fasting together, a practice that connects our body and our spirit. It's a practice that reminds us that God has not created us as simply spirits that are caged up in a body. That God has not created us as simply people with a body to just live in the here and in the now, but that God has created us as people in His image with bodies and spirits that reflect who He is. And when our spirit experiences pain and grief and loss, fasting is a practice that brings us into contact with those experiences. When we see and experience the injustices of poverty, of homelessness, racism, abuse, fasting is a practice that brings our whole self, body, and spirit before God to cry out to Him for His presence, to acknowledge that these aren't the way things are supposed to be, to see these realities as He sees them. Through fasting, our body speaks what our spirit longs for, the power and the presence of Jesus in our lives and in this world. Fasting is a practice that reminds us in a physical, visceral way that we are not filled by bread alone, but by every word that, word that comes from the mouth of God. And here's the thing. God in His grace does fill us, doesn't He? God shows up with His transforming power. God does not withhold His presence from us. God gives us His Spirit to be with us and to be in us who believe. The transforming power of God that comforts us, that provides for us. The presence of God does fill us. God shows up in our pain. God shows up in our grief. God shows up in our times of need. Today we are going to close out this series by looking at how the practices of fasting and feasting work together to form our lives around the power and presence of God that we already experience and what we're still waiting for what we will experience in the new creation.
And so I want to look at a story with you in Matthew chapter 9 that I think illustrates this really well. Matthew chapter 9, we've uh, alluded to this story a few times over the last few weeks, but I really I want to dive into it with you here over the next few minutes. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but to sinners. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worse tear is made, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put in to fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. This scene here that Matthew recounts, uh, a story of himself and Jesus, probably took place in or around the city of Capernaum. And the city of Capernaum lied on, uh, was on a road in between Egypt and the east. It was probably the busiest road in all of Palestine. And on this road was a tax booth occupied by Matthew, where he collected customs and taxes from travelers on behalf of the Roman government. You probably know this, but tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. They were despised by their fellow Jews because they were corrupt individuals often. They, they stole, they kept, they, they charged taxes above and beyond even what the Roman government charged, and they kept those extra taxes for themselves. They were Jews working for the occupying Roman government. So they were seen as traitors by their own people. Matthew was in this booth when he encountered Jesus. And he writes that when Jesus said, follow me, he got up and he followed him. It's so simple, but think about how profound that is. He encounters Jesus and he leaves his life, his livelihood, he leaves his identity 
to follow Jesus. And what we immediately see is that upon following Jesus, we're brought into Matthew's home, and we see Jesus reclining at the table with other people, reclining at the table with some of Matthew's friends, other tax collectors, other people that Matthew was associating with. And that reclining at the table is a euphemism for eating. They were eating together. They were dining together. They were having a meal together. And as we know, sharing a meal together in that time was a little bit more significant, both relationally and socially, than it is today. When you ate with someone back in this day, you weren't only sharing a meal with them. You were identifying with their life. You were sharing each other's life. And that's what rankled the Pharisees. That's what rankled the religious leaders when they saw what was happening here. Because here was a Jewish teacher, Jesus, a Jewish teacher, respected and revered in that culture, eating with the dregs of society, eating with traitors, eating with outcasts, eating with people that other Jewish people wanted to have nothing to do with, people with bad reputations and seedy character. But look at Jesus' response to their question. Why am I eating? Because I'm here to heal people. I'm eating with these people because this is what I came to do. This made total sense to Jesus. I called Matthew to follow me. He followed me, and now we're eating together. This made complete sense to Jesus. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by quoting a verse from the prophet Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God speaking through the prophet Hosea to Israel. They had lost the heart behind their temple worship. Even though they were still going through the practices, their heart was not with the Lord. Their heart was not with God. They missed what God had really desired of them. And Jesus says, hey, fellas, go and learn, which was a common phrase from rabbis of that day. It meant, hey, you need to go and study up a little bit more. You need to go and get your nose back in the book because you don't really understand. You're not as clever as you think. What Jesus is telling these Pharisees is, hey, listen, you are supposed to be teachers of the law. You are supposed to be the religious leaders in this society but these tax collectors and sinners, they're really the ones who get it. They're the ones who get it. They understand whether or not they could put it into words. These people knew who they were. And they wanted Jesus. They wanted to be with Jesus. They were sick. And the doctor was here. They needed a physician. And that physician was here. Is there any better reason to feast? Is there any better reason to share a meal together, to enjoy each other's company, 
to celebrate the fact that Jesus, the great physician, the healer, the Messiah, is here. Jesus goes on to emphasize this point in the verses following. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they say, Hey, why are you guys over here feasting and eating and making merry while we're over here fasting? We're over here abstaining from food. We are fasting, and yet you are eating and drinking and making merry. What's up with that? That doesn't make sense to us. During their exile in Babylon, the Jewish people began to fast as a regular part of their life. The Pharisees here and most religious Jews of this day fasted twice a week. It was part of their religious practices. It was part of, uh, uh, of their temple worship. It was fasting, giving to the poor, praying. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? This is what we're doing. This is how we mark ourselves as being religious and spiritual people? Why aren't your disciples fasting? Jesus uses the analogy of a wedding. Because John the Baptist himself, in John chapter 3, had referred to Jesus as the groom. John said, "I Jesus is the groom, and I'm his best man. I'm standing beside the groom And John says, I am rejoicing that the groom is here. And so Jesus says to John's disciples, guys, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? No, the groom is here. I'm here. This is a time to be be thankful. This is a time to be glad. This is a time to celebrate because I am here. This isn't a time for mourning or longing. It's a time for celebration and joy. It's a wedding feast because the bridegroom is here for his bride. Will you turn with me back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 6? You may remember these words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. And again, if you see the titles in your Bible, you will see that Jesus is addressing those religious practices of the day. Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus tells his disciples here, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says here, don't stop fasting. Don't throw fasting out. But when you fast, understand why. Understand why you're fasting. 
Understand the heart that God desires you to have in your fasting. It's not, you're not fasting so that you can look really, really spiritual to other people. Your fasting should reflect your need, and that need is not for the approval of human beings. That need is for the presence of God in your life. That need is to know God, to know his power, to experience his presence, to be filled by him. Do you see here that the same heart in fasting is applied to feasting by Jesus. The same heart is behind both fasting and feasting because people who fast and feast in Jesus' name are people who desire to be filled with the presence of God. They're people who long to know God, to be filled with God, to experience God in the secret place. Jesus is not talking about here the secret place as being some closet that you go and shut yourself in. But when you fast, you are rewarded by God in the secret place. You are rewarded by God in your spirit, in who you are, in your communion, in your relationship with him. And as we have seen over these last few weeks, fasting can make us aware of our utter need for God. It's a bodily way of expressing that we long to know God. And similarly, in feasting, we're expressing that the presence of God in our lives is filling, is satisfying, is good. Feasting can bring our bodies and our spirits in tune with the wonder of God's provision for us and thankfulness that God has given himself to us in very real and in very tangible ways. Feasting can bring our bodies and our spirits in tune with the presence of God. You see, both can be true at the same time, and both are true at the same time. We can rejoice that God is with us while also longing to be with him more fully. We can wonder at the goodness of God in our lives while at the same time mourning that his goodness isn't fully realized on this earth. We can live with thanksgiving in the present while also looking forward to the new creation reality of our futures. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus told two parables. You don't have to turn there. Jesus told two parables, one about a wedding feast and the other about a great banquet. Both were metaphors for the kingdom of God, and both feasts were attended not by the worthy, who could repay their host, but by people who came with nothing to offer and were well aware of their need. In Revelation 19, John sees a vision of a great multitude of people praising Jesus Christ, and the angel who is showing him this vision says to John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. When we feast today, we can do so in anticipation of that day. This is the already not yet of following Jesus Christ that we so often talk about. 
we experience in part right now what we will know and experience to the fullest one day. Christians should be people who fast and feast. We should be people who fast and feast because these are practices that reflect our reality. These are practices that reflect our identity. These are practices that help remind us over and over and over again of who we are and the God who we serve. So what could this look like for us? We feast a lot, don't we? As Americans, we we feast. We know how to eat well. We celebrate a lot of things. Holidays, birthdays, weddings, graduations, church lunches and dinners. The list goes on and on and on. What we need to know is that feasting is not first about the food. It is first and foremost a Godward celebration. A Godward celebration that we share together. When we eat good food and we drink good drink in abundance, it's an, it is an enjoyment of God and His kindness. There is nothing particularly Christian about eating and drinking more than usual. Uh, what makes fa- feasting, <laughs> I mean, I, I just have to say that. Um, what makes feasting a means of God's grace is when we feast with the understanding and as an acknowledgement that the nourishment of our souls that we really need is found in Jesus Christ. That our filling, that our satisfaction can only be found in Him. And listen, we can talk all day about our unhealthy relationship with food in this country. We can talk all day about the fact that maybe the reason why we can't enjoy feasts is because we've overindulged in the days leading up to our feasts. We can talk all day about those kind of things. But what I want to leave you with today is is something a little bit deeper. It gets to the heart of, of, of this understanding of what it means to fast and to feast for the presence of God. What if we were people who fasted and feasted weekly? That fasting and feasting were part of our weeks. What if we were people who set aside one day each week to fast as an expression of our need for God? And then we shared a meal with special food on our Sabbath day or for lunch after church on Sunday or for dinner on Sunday? What if we are people who respond to grief and tragedy and suffering with fasting for a period of time, but followed that time of mourning with a feast of hope, bodily acknowledgement that sorrow lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning? What if we were a community of people who not only fasted in response to poverty, in solidarity with those who were poor, but then threw a feast and invited those who don't have food to come and eat with us? What if that was part of our life? What if that was part of our MC rhythms? What if that was part of our church calendar? 
feast with those who do not have enough food? What if we fasted on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the globe who are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ and then looked for opportunities to feast and to dine together with those here in our city from different races and cultures, ethnicities and languages, knowing that that's what we will do in eternity with people from every tribe in every tongue, in every language, at the wedding feast of the Lamb. In our MCs over the coming weeks, we are going to practice feasting together. We're gonna, or, I'm sorry, we're going to practice fasting together. And then hopefully what we're planning is sometime uh, around or after Easter is to hold a church feast together to experience these practices together as a community of faith. But what would this look like for you as an individual, as a follower of Jesus in your week, in your month, over this next year? What would this look like in your family to practice fasting and feasting? Parents, what would it look like for us to teach our children how to feast well? how to enjoy abundance in thanksgiving to God. Jesus told his disciples to eat and to drink in remembrance of him, to long for his presence, and to know that they can be filled with his grace. As followers of Jesus, that is why we do this every week. That's why we do this as a church community every single week. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in the juice, because it is a reminder to us as people who follow Jesus that we are filled. That we both, that we, can, that we long for the presence of God. That we look forward to one day when we will fully realize and experience the presence of God, but we also rejoice that because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we can know in part what that satisfaction and that filling means for us today, tomorrow, this week, this month. So I want to invite you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, to come and to partake in this, this small little bite, this small little morsel that is symbolic of what we will all experience. And I want to leave you with these words from Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would continue to transform us into individuals and into a community that lives the future into our present. That the realities of what will be, the anticipation of our life to come, will be a very visible part of our life now. 
I pray that we would be people who live in the tension of grief and of comfort, of discouragement and pain, and also hope. That we would live with the acute awareness of our need for you and rejoice that each and every day you meet us, that you promise to fill us with your presence, provide what we need, that you have not left us, that you will never forsake us. Lord, we lift up our lives to you. We lift up our community to you. We pray that as we interact with people in this neighborhood, in this city, that they would see in us people who live with a hopeful anticipation that one day you will make all things new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.